All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. This chapter of the book of Revelation has been talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we're going to finish this chapter today. We've seen that this reign, this kingdom, is happening now. Jesus is on his throne, ruling and reigning. And today, we'll see what happens at the end of this thousand-year reign. So follow along as I read, uh, beginning in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so now we come to the end of the millennium. We've said that the millennium, the reign of Christ, is happening now. We've talked about what it means to participate in ruling and reigning with Christ. And the kingdom we've seen is growing and it will continue to do so until it fills the whole earth. But when we say that it fills the earth, does that mean that everyone is part of the kingdom? Does it mean that everyone is a member of the new covenant? That everyone is a Christian? No, it doesn't mean that. It does mean that Christ's kingdom is dominant, that it's everywhere, that will happen. But it doesn't mean that there aren't some who remain his enemies. And in this passage, we see what happens to those enemies. Let's talk about verses 7 through 10. And there's one part of it that we're going to spend the majority of our time on this morning to try to explain. And when that is done, then I think kind of the rest of it all falls into place pretty easily. But we saw in the first couple of verses of chapter 20 that at the beginning of the kingdom of Christ, Satan was bound and chained so that he could not deceive the nations. He's like a lion on a chain. He's still dangerous. He can still cause problems, but the scope of what he can do is limited. But when it comes to the end of the millennium in verse 7, Satan is released to deceive the nations one last time. He gathers them for battle against Christ and his people. There are several things that I want to point out here that I think are important, but let me just point out one thing briefly, and then we're going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole uh, to understand part of what John is referring to. Okay, but first, one quick observation. As we said a minute ago, 
not everyone in the millennium is a Christian. There are enough people who are rebels that Satan can gather them together into an army. Ezekiel has a vision of the growth of the kingdom of God. He describes it like um, a river that's flowing out from the temple. It begins as a trickle, just kind of trickling over the doors of the threshold of the temple. And then as it goes out, it, it becomes deeper and deeper until it becomes this broad river that you can't even cross. And it goes out and it, it go, dumps out into the sea and it turns the sea into fresh water. And so the idea is everywhere it goes, things live. That's Ezekiel 47. But in a little aside comment, Ezekiel says that its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. So the picture that's painted is that there are still some outliers that do not become part of the kingdom, that do not live, that do not participate in the first resurrection like we talked about last week. So not everyone in the millennium is a Christian. Now, John tells us in Revelation 20, verses 8 and 9, that Satan deceives the nations, and John refers to them as Gog and Magog. This is one of those things that prophecy folks love to speculate about, and the most common thing to say is that Gog is Russia. So they say that this is an end-time battle where Russia comes to attack Israel. Well, John is referencing Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, where Ezekiel talks about Gog and Magog. And we'll go there in a few minutes. But the common interpretation that Gog is Russia is based on a really big leap of logic or interpretation. Um, Ezekiel 38 and verse 2 says this, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. The word chief in this verse is the Hebrew word resh. And so some people have said, well, that sounds like Russia. Resh, Russia. Even though Russia didn't exist as a country at that time. So they say that Gog and Magog is speaking of Russia. And I just think that's a classic example of twisting the Bible text to try to fit the geopolitical circumstance of what's going on today. It just doesn't work. There's nothing there uh, as far as that interpretation goes. So I want to give you an explanation that I think makes sense of this, but it's not something that's really super clear. I admit that. And we have to go on a bit of a wandering trail here. So I'm going to ask you to do your best to follow along as we do that. And it's going to seem completely unrelated at first, but we'll make the connections eventually. And let me just state this again so we're clear at the outset. In Revelation 20, John is referencing Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we have to understand what's going on in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in order to understand Revelation 20. But there's a lot of background before we can get to Ezekiel 38 and 39 to understand what's going on. But that's where we're headed, okay, so that we can understand Revelation 20. Okay, here we go. When Israel left Egypt in the Exodus, one of the people groups that opposed them on their journey to Canaan was the Amalekites. 
the Amalekites came to fight against the Israelites. And you might remember the story. Moses goes up on top of a hill and he holds his staff up in the air. And as long as he holds his staff up, Israel's winning the battle. But his arms get tired and the staff comes down and then Amalek begins to win. So Aaron and Hur come over and they both grab an arm and hold it up. And so his staff is raised and Israel wins the battle. Well, here's how the story ends in Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So note a couple of things there. First, God promises that he will at some point utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Second, there's a recognition that God is the king who gave them the victory, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And number three, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, and you got to remember this, Amalek will be a perpetual enemy of God throughout time. Now, when will God blot out Amalek? Well, we don't know, but not for a while because generations will unfold where Amalek continues to be the enemy of God. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, next scripture passage, Numbers 24, and just two quick observations here. This is the story of the prophet Balaam, and Balaam gives an oracle which speaks about how the king of Israel will be exalted. And after describing the blessing that God will give to Israel, he says this, his king, Israel's king, shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Who is Agag? Well, Agag is the name of an Amalekite king who shows up later in the story. So when this is written, when Balaam says this, the Agag that's in the Bible has not come on the scene yet. But Agag is an Amalekite term, and the term just means I will overtop. So in other words, in a contest, I will come out on top. So an Amalekite king thinks he will come out on top, but God says that he'll bless Israel so that their king will be exalted over the foreign king. And it's interesting to note that in the Septuagint, okay, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it was in use in Jesus' day. Okay? In the Septuagint version of this, the word agag is translated gog. That's what the word is. Okay? That's an important connection. Now, a few verses after this, as Balaam continues, he says this about Amalek. Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. So again, it's repeated that Amalek will someday be utterly destroyed. All right, next scripture passage, Deuteronomy 25. This is now where Israel is coming to the end of their wilderness wanderings and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. 
And as they're doing that, Moses is repeating the laws. He's telling them the things they need to remember as they go. And he says this. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So when the time comes that Israel is at rest in the land, they are to remember what Amalek did and wipe them out completely. All of that, now that we've covered so far, sets us up for the story that we find in 1 Samuel 15. I told you it was going to be a little bit of a trail here. In this chapter, Israel is now settled in the land and they have their first king. Who's Israel's first king? Saul. And they go to battle against the Amalekites. And Samuel tells Saul that God says he should utterly destroy them. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But when God gives Saul the victory, Saul doesn't obey. He spares the best of the livestock and everything that was good and he spares the Amalekite king, whose name is Agag. Samuel confronts Saul then, and Saul makes excuses, but in the end the truth comes out, and the punishment for Saul's disobedience is that the kingdom is taken away from him, and it's given to David. David and his line will be Israel's kings. So when the ultimate king, Jesus, comes, he comes not in the line of Saul, but of David. Okay. Now we come to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Turn there with me. Grab your Bible. Turn to Ezekiel 38. Now the whole thing is important. I would love to, to walk us through chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, but we don't have time to do that. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of things for you. Remember, this is the passage that John is referencing when he speaks of Gog and Magog. And in 36 and 37, we have prophecies about the new covenant. When 37 comes to an end, it specifically says that my servant David will sit on the throne. When Ezekiel says that, David is dead and gone. So what does he mean? He means someone in the line of David, a greater David, will come and will sit on the throne of the kingdom. Now we come to Ezekiel 38. Look with me at the beginning. We'll look at the first three verses. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince, 
chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So we have Gog and Magog. Gog is the king and Magog is his land. Gog's land. And the Lord says that he is against them. Gog will fight against God's people, but the Lord is against him. Now, what is it that Gog wants to do? What does he intend to accomplish? Look down at verse 13. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? So Gog is seeking spoil, specifically silver and gold, livestock and cattle. That's Gog's purpose. What about God's purpose? Look at verse 16. Verse 16. God says, in the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God brings Gog for what purpose? To demonstrate his holiness before the eyes of the nations. What God does will be a display to the nations. And he says it again in verse 23. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. That's chapter 38. Then chapter 39 talks about how God will defeat Gog's army and will protect his people. So look with me at chapter 39, verses 21 to 23. Chapter 39, 21 to 23. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. So God will judge Gog. And the nations will see his judgment and it will bring glory to God. And God mentions the captivity of Israel, the exile to Babylon. This prophecy of Ezekiel is given before Israel goes into captivity, but it promises restoration after the captivity, after the exile. So in Ezekiel's mind, this is about the exile and what God's going to do. Look with me at verses 25 to 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and the, all the treachery they've practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Okay, so... It's the bringing them back from exile that God is going to, that's going to vindicate his holiness before the nations. The nations will see this, all right? Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. And I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. 
So God's people will be restored, God will be vindicated, and God will pour out his spirit on his people. So it seems that this is the kind of prophecy that has both a near and a far fulfillment. Because, for example, Israel very soon after this was taken into exile and then God brought them back from exile. That would be the near fulfillment. That's the thing that is in view in Ezekiel's prophecy. But there's part of it that doesn't happen until a long time later. When does God pour out his spirit on his people? That's not until after Jesus dies, rises, ascends, and pours out the Spirit at Pentecost, as we read earlier in the service. So, there's near and far fulfillment in view. The next scripture passage I want us to see is the book of Esther. Okay, Now, that's before Ezekiel in your Bible, but it's after Ezekiel in terms of when it happens in history. So the book of Esther is talking about something that happens after Ezekiel's prophecy. Okay? <clears throat> it takes place after the exile that Ezekiel was prophesying about. And what I'm going to suggest is that what Ezekiel is talking about when he prophesies about Gog and Magog is what we find in the book of Esther. That may sound strange, but stick with me. Here's the quick overview of that time period. Right, the, remember, God allows the Babylonians to come and they take the Jews out of the land and they go back to Babylon. That's the time period of Daniel. Right, the story, you remember the stories of Daniel. Well, after 70 years of exile, the first group of Jews returns to the land of Israel. But many of them still remain in the foreign land. There's just one group that comes back to begin with. About 90 years later, another large group comes back under the leadership of Ezra. And then a few years after that, another group under the leadership of Nehemiah. And then under Ezra and Nehemiah, the city and the temple are rebuilt. The story of Esther takes place near the end of that time period. God uses Esther to rescue and protect the Jews in the Persian Empire from a plot to destroy them. Now, we're just going to drop in on one small part of the story of Esther. I mentioned that I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about the story that we find in the book of Esther. And the connection that we're going to make here is not original to me. Other commentators have suggested this. I'm not adamant that this is what Ezekiel is talking about, but I do think it makes sense. And I think it helps us to understand eventually what's going on in Revelation 20. Okay, so in Esther 3, here's what we find in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. All right. Who is Haman? Haman's the bad guy in the story. Okay? Haman is the one who hatches the plot to utterly destroy all of God's people, all of the Jews in the, in the whole empire. Now, what do we learn about Haman here? Well, first of all, he's an Agagite. He's an Amalekite. He's descended from King Agag, the king that Saul failed to kill. And, and by the way, 
you can read the story of Esther as undoing the problem of what Saul created, okay? But this man, Haman, is one of the perpetual enemies of God. Remember, the Amalekites will be at war with God generation after generation. This is one of them. Haman is one of them. And, in fact, one later manuscript that we have actually translates this as Haman, the Gogite. And so this is an old connection that has been made between Gog and Agag and those descended from him. Now, what else do we know about Haman? Well, the king places Haman above all the officials who were with him. Another way to say that is he's the chief prince. Remember what Ezekiel said of Gog? He's the chief prince. Then we learn in Esther 3, verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole empire, the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So this is the enemy of God seeking to destroy all of God's people. Verse 10 refers to him as Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And in verse 13 we read, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So Haman seeks to destroy the Jews completely and to plunder their goods. Well, what goods would he plunder? While Haman's plot is unsuccessful, Haman himself, and along with all of his sons, is killed instead of the Jews. But when the Jews are then given permission to go back into the land and rebuild, we read this in Ezra 1.4. This is part of the decree of Cyrus. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So they return with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts. Those are the goods that the Jews had, which Haman sought to plunder. Remember what Ezekiel says that Gog wanted to plunder. Silver and gold, livestock and cattle. And there are other reasons, too, to make these connections and to think that what Ezekiel is talking about when he speaks of Gog is actually a prophecy about Haman the Agagite. Now, the deliverance of the Jews in Persia in Queen Esther's day was miraculous, and it was complete. It even leads Israel to add a feast day to their calendar to celebrate that deliverance every year, the Feast of Purim, which we know that Jesus himself celebrated. Okay, now we come back full circle to Revelation chapter 20. Okay, that was the rabbit hole. Now we'll tie it together. Look again at verses 7 and 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. Satan deceives the nations and they come together to destroy Christ's people. If you're John and you're trying to figure out what language to put this in, how do I describe this threat that would entirely wipe out all of God's people. 
what better description than to characterize this as what Ezekiel describes, Gog and his land, which is Haman and all of those associated with him. Haman the Agagite, the Gogite, the Amalekite, the perpetual enemy of God and God's people. The Amalekites, which God says one day will be utterly destroyed because they opposed God and his people. So you may find it disappointing, but I don't think Gog is Russia. It's just John using biblical language saturated with the storyline of the Bible to communicate the evil nature of this opposition against Christ and his people. Just like in Esther's day, Christ's people seemed to face extinction, annihilation, destruction, until God miraculously intervened. So too, at this point, you have Satan deceiving the nations. They come and they surround God's people, and it seems like there's a threat to destroy all of God's people, and what's God going to do? He's going to miraculously intervene, as he has so many times throughout history. I think then the rest of Revelation 20 just kind of makes sense when we understand that that's the point that John's emphasizing. It's not terribly complicated. The nations surround the city of God's people and what happens? There's no battle. There's no conflict. What happens? God just intervenes and wipes them all out. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Remember what God said would happen with the Amalekites? There would come a day when they would be utterly destroyed. Here you have a people that are in the mold of the Amalekites. They are spiritually the descendants of the Amalekites, the Agagites, the Hamanites, the Gogites. They're utterly destroyed by God. All opposition to the kingdom of Christ is gone. This is Jesus executing judgment on his enemies. And remember how Gog, or Haman, was seeking to take the plunder of God's people? Well, think about what we've noted in previous weeks about the kingdom of Christ. Jesus describes himself as the stronger man who comes and plunders the strong man, Satan, takes back those possessions. And then what? The devil is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and their torment goes on day and night forever and ever. Hell is not Satan's domain where he enjoys torturing people. No, it's God's domain where he justly punishes Satan once and for all. And that punishment is eternal. So why does God allow Satan to deceive the nations at the end of the millennium. For the same reason that Ezekiel said God allowed Gog to threaten God's people. It would display his glory. It would vindicate his holiness. His judgment. All the nations would see it. God wipes out the Amalekites and all who are like them all who persist in their rebellion against him and everyone sees it and no one will argue with it because it will be perfectly evident to everyone that these rebels deserve the punishment they receive. That's why Satan is unleashed because it becomes perfectly clear and evident to everyone 
And it vindicates God's holiness and his judgment when he consigns them to eternal torment in hell. Then in verses 11 through 15, we see the great white throne and him who is seated on it. Who is this? It's Jesus. We saw Jesus on a white cloud in chapter 4 and on a white horse in chapter 19. Now he's on a white throne. Part of Jesus' exaltation that the New Testament writers all speak about is that he's the one who executes judgment. He's the one on the throne. Like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed all say, he sits on the right hand of God the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in verse 12, it's the dead who are judged here. That means this is only the rebels who are in view. Remember, believers have part in the first resurrection, so they are living, not dead, spiritually. The dead are the unbelievers, the rebels. And it says, books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So catch this. This is really important to understand. There are books, and there's a book, the book of life. The single book is the book of life, and if your name is in the book of life, then you live with Christ for eternity. You don't face the eternal judgment and torment that Satan does. Now, how do you get your name written in the book of life? Well, the Bible tells us they're written there from the foundation of the world. It's those who have faith in Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior, and you trust him, you have faith in him to save you from your sins, then your name is written in the book of life. And that's, that book is how you will be judged. What are the other books? Well, they're the record of our works, our deeds. So the dead, the unbelievers, are judged on the basis of those books because their names are not in the book of life. So they'll be judged based on their works. And since all men are sinners, they'll be condemned by their works. Please don't miss the difference. If you're a believer, you will be judged based on the book of life. Your name is there. You'll be judged as righteous, dressed in the righteousness of Christ. But if you are an unbeliever, you will be judged according to your works and you will be condemned. Another way to say this is that men are either saved by grace or condemned by works. Those are the only two possibilities. You will be saved by grace through faith because of Christ or you will face damnation because of your sinful works apart from Christ. The book of life or the books of your works. And the sea and death and Hades all give up the dead that are in them. This is the second resurrection, a physical resurrection where death is undone. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death. That's this resurrection. And then Christ turns the kingdom over to the Father. So that happens at the end of this kingdom. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. The dead are all raised, either to eternal life or eternal death. And then death and Hades are done away with, thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, no one will ever die again. And the lake of fire is the second death. 
It's the place of final judgment for all unbelievers. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We took a lot of time this morning to explain Gog and Magog. That's because it's the confusing part of this passage. So hopefully we've at least started to make some sense of that this morning. But what is the important doctrine from these verses that you need to walk out remembering this morning? Here it is. Which book you're in makes all the difference for eternity. Which book you're in makes all the difference for eternity. Everyone faces judgment. If you belong to Christ, then he's your representative. He stands in your place. His righteousness covers you. His blood has paid the penalty of your sins. So you will not be judged based on your works, but on his. You'll be rewarded for your works done in Christ, but your eternal destiny is secure because of Christ. But if you do not belong to Christ, then you will be judged according to your works. You will stand on your own and you will fail. You will be judged guilty. You will be sentenced to an eternity of torment. Which book you're in makes all the difference for eternity. So what should you do with this truth this morning? Well, if you're not a believer, if you aren't trusting Christ as your Savior, then God's Word calls you to respond this morning in repentance and faith, to believe in Jesus. That's your only hope. And if you are a believer, then this passage should cause you to praise God. When Gog and the nations surround God's people, surround the people of Christ, how is the battle won? God does it. That's it. God wins the battle for his people. And his people should respond in praise. And that's what he's done for us. He's defeated Satan and sin and death. He's dealt with your sins on the cross if you are a believer. And the result should simply be praise and thanksgiving. Because he's done it for you. In a moment, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Why is this the central ordinance of our faith? Why is this the thing that Jesus left for the church to celebrate regularly? Well, he wants us to remember his death and resurrection, his blood shed for us in our place. Because that's what brings us life. Just as our physical food and drink provide the nutrients that we need to live physically, this meal represents the body and blood of Christ given for us. That's what provides what we need to live spiritually. And so we celebrate what Christ our King has done for us, his people. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider, consider this passage <clears throat> that kind of points us forward to what happens at the end of Christ's kingdom, there, there's part of it that, that could be just very down or depressing because it's all about this judgment. 
And yet in the midst of that, there's this statement that you step in to protect your people and wipe out their enemies. And so I pray that we would respond to that this morning in gratitude, particularly when we think of the enemy of sin and the penalty that we deserve and what Christ has done for us. In a few short weeks, we're going to be turning to these last two chapters of Revelation. And and Lord, what we find there is just absolutely glorious. And it tells us what we have to look forward to, the gracious gift of eternity with you that you have given to us. And so this morning, if there are people here who have not responded in faith to what you have done, I pray that you would, by your spirit, open their eyes, give them new life in repentance and faith. And for those of us who are your children, who have responded in faith, I pray that you would again set before us the glory of Christ. That you would cause us to respond in gratitude and in praise and thanksgiving for the wonderful gift of salvation. And we pray this this morning in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.